It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk about the draft with BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, June the 13th. It's show number 43 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon about the recent baseball draft, who made good picks, who made questionable picks, who did well and who did poorly, and which players are likeliest to reach the majors quickly, as well as Rob's studs and duds among rising stars for the rest of this season. We'll also have this commentary from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's our Metric Minute and analyst Ryan Bloomfield talking about expected power index for hitters. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Bronson Arroyo went on the disabled list. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, on Monday, the Diamondbacks put Bronson Arroyo on the DL with right elbow tendonitis. Especially this year, you might say a pitcher goes on the DL, it's no big whoop, right? Well, in Arroyo's case, this is at least a somewhat big whoop. It's the first time in his 15-year big league career that Arroyo has been on the disabled list. In fact, as Baseball HQ Diamondbacks team analyst Rob Carroll reported in Playing Time Today, it's also the first time in 11 seasons as a full-time starter that Arroyo will even miss a start due to illness or injury. Until this happened, Arroyo had 369 consecutive starts, the second most among active pitchers behind Mark Burley at 443. But he's a couple of starts ahead of two guys you might have heard of, Juan Marichal and Bob Gibson, both of whom had streaks of 367 straight starts. By now you must be wondering who leads the category, and I'll tell you now, that record is 756 consecutive starts. Think about whom that might be, and I'll tell you later in the show, after we open our Tuesday Tout Edition, as always, with our feature expert interview. It's BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Rob, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me on the show again, Patrick. It's a pleasure to have you. I know it's uh, very exciting to talk about the draft, but before we get there, I always like to ask our Tuesday Tout experts, how are you doing in your fantasy draft so far this year? Uh, well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, I'm, in, I'm in three leagues, and so one is a home league that I've been playing in for, for years, and I'm in probably about in the middle of the pack. It's a fairly competitive league, and prospects don't uh, don't play quite as big a role in that in that format, so I'm struggling a little bit there. But in the two other leagues, I'm in, uh, I'm in first place. I'm one AL-only league, and it's a, it's a, a keeper league, but not real deep league. And then in a um, kind of a quasi-experts dynasty league, I'm in first place in that one. Have you tried the daily games or Ron Chandler's monthly format? I have not tried that yet. I'm very interested in doing that, and I actually was really intrigued by the idea of that because that's one of the things, especially in, in a you know standard roto league where you get can get buried in in a category. You know, you get a closer, you draft a closer, and uh, and he flames out or something, and you're you know you're just buried in the league. I really like the idea of being able to sort of uh, 
regroup and, and go back the next month and, and see if you can do something different. Or, you know, a, a guy has a great start, but you're not lucky enough to have spent the fab dollars on him and be able to get that guy, you know, later in, in a more appropriate way. So I really like the, the concept of it, but I haven't had a chance to do it yet. No, me either, but I'm looking forward to giving it a try, especially the monthly format, because it seems like a nice balance between, you know, I talk with Todd Zola a lot about the daily format, and he says to play it right, you have to play it every day. And so it becomes a very big time commitment and also a money commitment, frankly, that I'm not willing to make to, to play day in and day out, uh, because for a, to, to be successful at it, he says it's like poker. You just got to play a lot and expect that you're going to be lucky to win 55% of the time or 52, and that's where you make your edge right and it's just like the daily you're figuring out who's sitting that day and who's who's going to play and what the matchups are it's just it does seem very time consuming although i was told by somebody that there's a, a lot of websites springing up that have the daily batting orders and pitching matchups baseball hq uh, of course has a pitching matchups tool but there are lots of sites that are springing up to provide service to if you want to know what the batting order is tonight for a particular game you can find it out but even if you know where to look that's still, it could be as many as 15 games going on. That's a lot of batting orders to peruse. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, and especially if you're, you know, if you're doing other things or if your kids have stuff going on or you want to watch a baseball game yourself without worrying about all those details. It, it, it does seem like it's a big commitment. Yeah, it, it does. And, and for that reason, I've been more intrigued by Ron's idea, which was, of course, monthly fantasy baseball. I thought that, that seems like a really good idea. Yeah, I like that idea. You mentioned that uh, your your one of your leagues is not real prospect heavy, and I've wondered over the years how much benefit you found that you get from in running your fantasy teams by covering the minors as as deeply as you do for the baseballhq.com site. Well, I think it's I think it's very useful. Um, you know, there is some. It's interesting because some owners just love prospects, and so being able to to have a good familiarity with what the players are, you know, who the who the prospects are, and being able to, to acquire those hot commodities before they become hot commodities can have tremendous value. And the, the, the real tricky part is to try to figure out what to do with those players once you've, once you've acquired them. So, you know, I think over the years I've been fortunate enough to be able to get somebody like a Jose Fernandez earlier than some other players uh, just because I knew who, the, who those, you know, sort of in low A, high A kind of players were and to be able to leverage that effectively. But the tricky part is to figure out, is that a player I'm, I'm going to try to trade and and build, you know, current value for, or is that something they really want to hold on to? Uh, and that's where I think it gets gets fairly tricky. Well, in your experience, do fantasy owners tend to overvalue prospects or undervalue them? I think it depends. I think it kind of depends on the on the owner and on the context. I think in general, there's a, a, a tremendous um, temptation to overvalue the prospects and to place. You know, you see somebody like a, you know Mike Trout come along, and then everybody is for the next five years is looking for the next Mike Trout when there isn't there isn't a next Mike Trout. There wasn't a you know a Mike Trout for the last twenty years. So um, you know somebody like Jose Fernandez. I mean, you know you had you had Mike Trout and then Jose Fernandez in back to back years, and then I think just about the time we were kind of coming around to a consensus that maybe some minor league prospects tended to be overvalued, you had those two players come along, and so now they're really overvalued. Now, so I, I really do think that they're. In general, they tend to be overvalued. But you know, on the team that I have that's in that's in first place, I have Jose Fernandez and I have Yasiel Puig, um, and that's one of the main reasons why I'm doing well because I got those guys later or cheaper than than I would have otherwise gotten them. So you kind of have to be lucky, but you also, I think, for me, I think that the best value of those of those players is the trade value. And so, you know, uh, working with a, an owner who's trying to rebuild for the future. Um, 
you know, trading players to trading those prospects to get players that are going to help you in the short term. I think more often that's the way to go. You know what I think is that players who like prospects overvalue them and players who don't like prospects undervalue them and don't even pay attention in many cases. So what do you think is the best approach to prospects and minor leaguers while you're running your fantasy team? Well, I think it, it depends on the, the format that you're playing in. If it's a, if it's a short-term keeper league, I think the trade, you know, one of the leagues I play in, you can only keep the minor league players for, for three years. And so if that's the case, I think there's really the, the trade value is the greatest value that they have because the likelihood that somebody's going to come up and be like a Mike Trout right, off, right out of the gate is not that great. I mean, look at somebody like, you know, uh, Oscar Tavares or Gregory Polanco, probably going to be really good players, but neither one of them sort of setting the, the world on fire right out of the gate. And that's going to happen, I think, more often than not. So having, having players like that where you, you, you can trade them and get some present value, I think, is really useful. If it's a dynasty format, I think you really have to be more judicious about that and really kind of try to figure out where those players are going to, you know, is a, is a guy like uh, you know, Will Myers going to come up and be productive for 10 years? That's a, hard, that's a harder player to, to trade away. Uh, so I think you just have to be cautious about that and understand the context and, and, and like mix and match, you know. So if you, if you need to trade, the nice thing is if you have enough, if you have enough stockpile, you have enough depth, if you really scouted the players heavily, you can keep some of the ones you really want and think are going to have an impact and then also trade some of the other ones to, to get present value so you can kind of do a little bit of both. It's interesting that you mentioned Mike Trout because everybody looking back on him says, you know, he came into the league and set the league on fire and he was, you know, the most valuable player candidate, and he really wasn't. He came up in 2011 right. and he hit 220, and he had a 281 on-base percentage, and by Baseball HQ measures, he was actually a negative dollar value for the year, and that might have turned off a lot of people. It doesn't always happen as soon as the player sets foot on, on a major league field. It's hard. Right, and that's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting, you know, example because I think just sort of my own memory of thinking back about that, I'd forgotten that part of it. And people tend to focus on just the, the good part of it, right? And so, you know, what do you do with, like I said, with somebody like Gregory Prolanco or Oscar Tavares who, who aren't, you know, they're, they're having those inevitable struggles. Um, you know, conversely, somebody like Tommy Listella who, who's, you know, really started well, is he going to continue to be as good as he as he's shown, he's not going to hit 360, right? So he's going to start to cool off, and maybe guys like Polanco and Tavares are going to start to heat up. And so it's it's tricky. And I really think that I do think that the best value is to have them there as, as trade bait. Yeah, and uh, do you think that uh, certain kinds of skills translate more quickly than certain other kinds of skills? That a Lastella perhaps has the kind of you know, he's a good fielder, which helps. Uh, you know, the Braves will let him play because he fields his position well. He hits for average. He's kind of a slappy hitter without much in the in the way of those other kind of skills. Is that easier to get going in Major League Baseball when your skill package looks like that as opposed to uh, Oscar Tavares, who's a, you know, go, you, we expect to be a all-around terrific hitter. George Springer came up and struggled early before he fell into at least a power groove. So are do different skills translate differently? Yeah, absolutely. I think I certainly, I certainly think somebody who has speed, so somebody like Billy Hamilton, assuming that they can get on base at all, um, or Dee Gordon, guys like that are going to have value just because of the speed factor. I also think players that, that have a good approach at the plate and aren't going to drive the ball for a lot of power tend to be more successful because they're patient at the plate. They know what they can do and what they can't do, and they're not trying to do too much. And I think sometimes you see these young players, like Springer's a good example. I mean, he's, you know, He's trying to be a cleanup hitter, and he's he's been up for two weeks. And so, you know, I think there's that 
you know, that's his MO as a player is to, is to hit the long ball, and so he's trying to do that, and that's harder to do um, when you're trying to figure out what your role is and trying to figure out major league pitchers. If you're a guy who's just going to take the ball back up the middle and give what you, you know, take what pitches the pitcher's going to give you, you're probably going to be more productive. And similarly, I would think somebody who, on the pitching end of it, somebody who is a good kind of finesse control pitcher and locates the ball well definitely has an advantage over hitters that haven't seen them before. So you'll see, you know, some guys come up like that, and they'll they'll have a good, you know, three or four or five starts until the league starts to get the the read on them. Whereas a, a guy who might come up with, uh, you know, an overpowering fastball but has some struggles with secondary pitches or some location, you know, if you can't locate and 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 throw two or three, you know, reliable pitches in the majors, no matter how hard you throw or how many guys you strike out in the minors, you're, you're going to struggle in the majors. So I think I think you know guys who put the ball into play and have a good approach at the plate have an advantage, and then pitchers who, who locate well, I think, have an advantage when they first come up. Having said that, though, when you look at the kind of guys who have the, those softer skills that come up and are more likely to be immediately, not hugely successful, but be able to hold their own, also have lower ceilings than the guys who, uh, who are, you know, big-time strikeout play, uh, pitchers or big-time home run hitters because their upside is so much greater once they figure it all out, if they ever do. Yeah, I know, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, like a guy like Jose Abreu, I mean, Obviously, I'd rather have Jose Abreu than uh, Tommy Lestella. <laughs> you know, and he's he's certainly already started to to prove that he's figured things out at the, at the major level, at least in terms of the power. You know, the finesse pitchers or the you know the slap hitters are going to have their place, but they're certainly not going to have tremendous um, fantasy value. So, those are the kind of guys you might want to get for a few weeks and then maybe trade them, and, and hopefully add somebody who's going to be more productive over the long term. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon, minor league analyst from BaseballHQ.com. And Rob, let's talk about the recently uh, concluded Major League Draft. Uh, now that now that it's all over with and you've had a chance to uh, examine the situation, which uh, Major League organizations do you think did the best at the draft? Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, the draft was really interesting this year. It was a pretty deep draft, and so, um, especially in, in pitching, there was a lot of pitching, good, good high school pitching and good college pitching. Pitching and then on the position level, both at the high school and college level, it was it was pretty thin. Probably better than overall, better than the crop of players that were drafted last year, but not anywhere near as good as say the 2011 draft, which was really deep. Um, I think the teams that that I liked initially um, were the Brewers. They they picked at uh, number 12 and they picked a high school lefty, Cody Medeiros. Um, was a little bit of a reach, but I think it, you know a lot of good upside. And then. Got a shortstop, Jacob uh, Gatewood uh, and Monty Harris, and in, in the supplemental second, uh, sorry, for the supplemental pick, and then their second round pick. And, uh, Gatewood and, and Harrison have, uh, I think, they were being talked about as possible late first round picks, and so to get both of those, um, either in the supplemental round or in the second round, I thought was a really good, um, a, a good draft for the Brewers. Um, another team I think has historically drafted fairly well and did another good job this year with the Blue Jays. Um, it would be interesting to see how their draft plays out because they had a ninth pick and the 11th pick in the draft. Um, and with the ninth pick, they pick uh, East Carolina um, right-handed starter Jeff Hoffman, who was, I think, coming into the year, a lot of people thought he was going to end up going you know, maybe number two or number three in the draft. But he had Tommy John surgery. So here's a guy who had Tommy John surgery and is out for all of next year, but they still picked him at number nine. So it's a, a little bit risky of a pick, and you know, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I guess if you're the Blue Jays and you have you're doing fairly well at the major league level and you've got some decent talent in the minors, it's worth taking a chance on somebody like that. Um, and then they pick uh, Max Pentecost at number eleven. I think very good, uh, very good hitter catcher, probably one best college catcher out there. Um, I also like the Pop. 
Padres. I think the Padres draft maybe gets overlooked a little bit. They got a guy, Trey Turner, um, with the, their first-round pick, and a lot of people were looking at him as a possible top-five pick coming into the year. He kind of struggled this year. He's also went to um, to North Carolina, in um, North Carolina State, and uh, with Carlos Rodon, and, and uh, is a good, good, solid player, shortstop, should be able to stay at shortstop, good offensive potential, but really didn't have a standout year this year. But I think, you know, where they drafted him, I really I really like that pick. And then they got a guy, Michael Geddes, in round two. Um, and I really, I don't know if you've seen video of him, but Geddes is really athletic. He actually reminds me a little bit of Mike Trout, just in terms of his, his potential and his athleticism, his swing a little bit, reminds me of Trout a little bit. Obviously not as nearly as polished as, as Trout was, but, you know, from a high school guy, pretty impressive if you watch him take batting practice. So those are the teams I think did you know, did fairly well in the, in the first round. You mentioned uh, that Toronto took uh, the Tommy John guy in the first round at number nine. Is it a, is it the case now that major league clubs just don't care about Tommy John like they might normally have even five or ten years ago because of the success rate of the surgery? Yeah, I mean, last year the Nationals took Lucas G. Uh, he's a high school kid who had Tommy John surgery. It, well, was likely to have Tommy John surgery. They didn't know for sure when they drafted him, but they took him with the nineteenth pick, and um, or I guess it was two years ago. And uh, and he you know was back and, and playing pitching really well at this point and that looks like a, a great gamble on their part, but I still think I, I don't know, I'm really surprised at number nine I guess that they that they took him that high because um, not only does he have Tommy John surgery and yes the, the success rate is much higher than it used to be, but obviously there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to come back 100 percent and the fact is that he's a you know as a, as a college guy he's already 21 so he's going to miss his year 22 season. And then, you know, if he's back when back pitching in the minors when he's, you know, turning 23, and he's really just starting the minors at that point, that's, that's a little bit riskier of a, a proposition, it seems to me, because in terms of his, you know, mar- the value that he has as a young, salary-protected player is going to be more limited, and, you know, he's going to be older by the time he finally reaches the majors. Is there any equivalence, though, between uh, uh, a guy who plays in a reasonably competitive college league and playing in low A? Is, is he, in fact, kind of getting a similar kind of experience, or is low A that much better than uh, than the college ranks? No, I don't think so. I think especially, you know, playing in a competitive program, I think, you know, he faced pretty good competition, and I think that's, you know, equivalent to, say, a uh, low beam, even high A level of competition, Um you know, maybe not in terms of the the quality pitching you might see in the minor in the high minors, like the, like a high A kind of uh, pitching staff would probably be better than most college pitching staffs would be. Um, but you know, as a pitcher, he's seen he's seen a pretty good lineup on on day in and day out, especially with the aluminum bats, even though they're BB core bats. So I think I think yeah, the the experience that he had in college was probably equivalent to to a low A high A kind of thing. But I, but still, I think even if you look at you know Mark Apple or some of the other high first-round picks, uh, they usually start out at maybe high A. So they're going to spend a good year, probably a high A, typically. You know, and if Hoffman's starting out a high A as, 20, as a 23-year-old, you know, that's a little bit old for the, for the curve. Not that he can't do it. It's just that I think, you know, you're, if, you, if it's a high school kid, I guess I'd, who had Tommy John surgery, I guess I'd be less worried about it than, a, than as a college pitcher. I was just wondering if maybe the Blue Jays look at it and go, he was pitching in essentially at at high A when he was because he was playing in a good college program against good college hitters, and so we're going to kind of give him a bit of credit for that. And when he comes back from the surgery, maybe the plan is they they throw him at that level for a half year and, and pump him up to Double A right away, so he starts to catch up to his age group a little bit and. 
you know, if if they think that he's got talent, maybe they that maybe they think it's a slightly unorthodox path to the majors, but it makes enough sense that they maybe get him when he's twenty four in the majors instead of twenty three. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think it's a huge deal. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the amount of money that you that you throw at a player at number nine, um, you know, I don't know what the the slot bonus is, but it's probably you know two two and a half maybe three million dollars versus if you picked him towards the end of the first round, um, you know, it might be a million and a half. You know, so uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a gamble. I think you know, I, I mean, definitely think based on the talent. I mean, if you if you knew for sure that Hoffman's going to come off that surgery and be completely healthy. Even if you miss a year, I think that that's definitely worth the gamble. The reality is you just don't know for sure he's going to come back 100% healthy. No, that's for sure. Did any organizations do particularly poorly, in your opinion? I did not like the Pirates draft. Um, you know, they, they picked um, a player that I wasn't even really very familiar with, um, and with their, with their, you know, Cole Tucker with their, with their first pick. And um, I just thought it was a bit of a reach, and it seemed like, you know, based on Based on you know doing some little bit of research on the on the player afterwards, I mean I don't think he's a bad baseball player. It just seemed like he was more in the you know seventy five hundred range in terms of prospect talent level, and it seemed like they really wanted a a shortstop because they haven't really been able to develop a shortstop internally. Um, and to me, I never th- I'm never I'm not a huge fan of doing that because I think of you know teams that have done that in the past, and that it's you know something like a Matt Bush because you're going to save money on him, and you know is he going to is he going to don't be the, the your starting shortstop, even though maybe he isn't the greatest talent? You save a little bit of money, and you you got a shortstop for the future. You just don't have any way of predicting that this guy's. I mean, he's six three, hundred and like one hundred and seventy five pounds, and he's not particularly physical. You watch a video of him, and he, he's not a particularly physical player. Um, I just think it's a, a fairly because now you 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 made him a first round pick, so you're going to pay him a decent amount of money that maybe you could have got him in the second round and paid him less money. And then you, you missed out on maybe a more impactful player down the road. Um, so I, I just I didn't like the way that they and I've liked the, the Pirates draft the last couple of years. I just did not like that pick. Um, and the other pick that I wasn't a huge fan of was the the Tigers um, pick Derek Hill, skinny, very fast, very good defensive um, high school outfielder. But you know he's like six one hundred and eighty pounds, and he, he just doesn't look like he's going to have that physicality that you really look for from a player. And from all accounts, he's very fast, very good defensive player, very you know, very good character, very good makeup. But he just doesn't look like he's got the again the physical tools that that scream first round draft pick. I noticed a couple of picks you guys mentioned in your baseballhq.com coverage of the draft. Uh, a position player who might be able to pitch if he doesn't pan out as a hitter. We've seen that in the major leagues here and there. Uh, Zimmer, I think his name is the Giants pick. And at the same time, St. Louis took a guy named Flaherty, uh, who's a pitcher, and if he doesn't pan out, he might be able to hit his way into the majors. And as well, there's the usual guys who have some multi-positional potential, usually first base outfield, but every so often you'll see catcher outfield or catcher first or something like that. Are organizations deliberately looking at pitcher hitter versatility as a plus or is it just one of those crazy things that happens from time to time uh, you know personally i think it's i think it's just one of those crazy things that happens from time to time because i mean if you think about it because the, there have been cases where um you know somebody got drafted matt bush is a you know a good example because he he was drafted as a shortstop and it didn't he could not hit <laughs> and so you know they they eventually switched him to um to a, a, a pitching role but then he you know throughout his throughout his arm and had ended up having tommy john surgery um, but the, the the downside with that is that it took them I don't know how many years to figure out he couldn't hit, and so for the first three years he was a he was a hitter, 
Um, and he lost all that development time on the mound. And then when that experiment didn't work out, then they tried to see if he could if he could pitch. And so it does happen occasionally where somebody um, somebody makes that transition. And sometimes it happens the other way around. But the, the, I can't think of the guy's name from for Houston that um, was a was a position player and then switched to, to pitching. It just uses uses so much development time um, that it doesn't seem like it's a plus to me. I think the the position flexibility is is not as much of an issue because let's say there's a couple players that got picked as, as catchers that might not be able to stick behind the plate. But the likelihood is they're going to be either moved to first base or a corner outfield position, which it's not that it's easy to learn a corner outfield position, but it's easier than learning how to be a catcher. <laughs> and so I think, you know, often those in those cases the bat's good enough and the players can make that transition relatively quickly. It's not like they're going to go from catcher to playing shortstop, right? So they're going to go from catcher to either first base or, or the outfield. So those kinds of transitions, I think, are fine. Or if it's, you know, a shortstop is moving over to second base or a shortstop is moving over to third base, I think those kinds of position flexibility sometimes can be a good thing. I think most times teams go into the draft thinking, we're going to draft this player as a catcher. And so we're not thinking of them either as a pitcher or that we're going to eventually have to move them to third base or something like that. They, so the, the problem is that you stick with that MO for at least a good year, year and a half, and then if that's not working out, then it's as kind of a last resort. They're switching into different positions. And it's interesting. The guy would really have to be able to hit because you think if he's a catcher, which is the toughest defensive position to play, then his hitting isn't quite as important in the overall scheme of things. But if you move him to one of the corner outfield slots or especially to first base, all of a sudden it's it's a defensive position that practically anybody with any kind of coordination at all can play. It's not, of course, it's not as easy as I'm making it out to be, but it's certainly much easier than catching. And now all of a sudden the only thing you have to your plus is is the bat, and that means that your bat has to be that much better than it would be had you stayed a catcher. Right, and especially if you look at, you know, like the, the, the a lot of scouts talk about this, like the right-handed batter, right, you know, first base only kind of player. There's tons of players like that. You know, and if that's the only thing that they can do, I mean, it's not to say that a player couldn't have value doing that role, either as a DH or playing, you know, playing first base and, and hitting for power. It's just it's easy to find those, well, it's relatively easy to find those kinds of players. It's very hard to find a good defensive catcher who can also hit for average. So the the you know, relative value of a player like that is greatly diminished if you have to move him to a corner outfielder for space. Right. If he's Miguel Cabrera, you'll put up with the fact that he's not much of a fielder, but boy, Miguel Cabrera's are pretty few and far between. And also teams nowadays, of course, they like to use that first base slot to rotate guys through, give them, you know, a half day off by DHing one day and, and uh, playing first the next day and, and that kind of thing. And if you've got a guy who basically just plugs up that slot, it's almost like drafting your fantasy team that you don't want to fill that spot too early. Rob, when you talked about um, a player losing development time in the minor leagues because he's he's a pitcher who's hitting instead of pitching and so forth, why can't they do both? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, I've always I, I'm not exactly sure. I think obviously the specialization is um, is is pretty time consuming. I think especially um, when you're talking about pitching, sort of learning how to learning how to you know pitch every every five days and uh, handle the rigors of that and um, you know, trying to figure out the mechanics of how to throw uh, properly and how to, how to, especially, you know, a lot of pitchers will come in and they have a good fastball, and that's about it. <laughs> you know, they'll throw 92, 94, they can't really locate the fastball consistently, um, but they don't really have much of a changeup or a breaking ball. Or maybe the breaking ball, you know, I, I think about the guy, Brady Aiken, who, um, who got drafted number one. You know, I mean, if you're in high school and the, the guy's throwing 
97 or 98, do you really have to have a good changeup? Probably not. Yeah. You know, and so I think sometimes the, just the, the maturation process of pitchers is, is so complex that, you know, leaders don't want to take the time to, or risk the injury, you know, the, the player either getting really tired. A lot of times these, especially the high school players have played, you know, maybe 30, 40 games a year, and then they're going to go to a schedule where they're going to play. Even if they're playing rookie ball, they're going to go, you know, up to 100 games, and then quickly after that they're going to go up to about 150 games. And so the players just get worn out, I think, um, you know, especially going from pitching maybe 50, 60 innings in high school to, you know, maybe 120 innings their first year and maybe even more than that after that. So I think there's just protecting the players, um, you know, longer term, trying to think about their their health and their, you know, I, but I also think there's some more complexities to the positions that they're playing, especially pitching. I understand that, but I, I know that a lot of college programs let a guy pitch his fourth day and then he goes back out and plays shortstop or center field or something. I mean, it happens, right? And it especially happens in high school. Yeah, it, it certainly happens in high school and in college. Um, it just doesn't happen in the minors, which is interesting. I think, you know, uh, colleges do it because out of necessity. <laughs> you know, they just don't have the they don't have an unlimited supply uh, of student athletes that they can that they can draw from. And so, if a player is you know very very athletic in in high school, they 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 do play both. They play you know whatever the position is, and they and they and they pitch often. Then it makes sense just out of a you know scarcity model to to be able to do that. But the, once you get into the into the minors, you know the sort of specialization is, is much greater at that point. The coaches are, you know, are much, are much more focused on, you know, the pitching coaches that they have in minor leagues are, are probably more focused on the development long-term of the player as opposed to college pitching coaches are focused more on getting through the season and, and putting up Ws. Yeah, but it, it just seems to me that, you know, I did a, a facts and fluke spotlight piece for BaseballHQ.com not long ago about Zach Greinke, and in his senior year in high school, he he was a he was a pitcher when he wasn't playing shortstop. He played senior league, and when he wasn't doing any of that, he was like winning the state tennis championship. And you know, I mean, when you're that age, do you get tired? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I know you know. I think back about the you know the, the Atlanta Braves pitcher Steve Avery. I mean, he he's from Michigan, and you know, from this area that I live in, and, and he you know, I think he set all kinds of offensive records in, in high school. Uh, hitting like you know 600 with like 25, 30 home runs a year kind of thing. So certainly, I mean, certainly the players are talented. They're young. I don't think they couldn't do it. I just think teams don't want to risk the injuries or the lack of development time on focusing on one particular thing. Well, maybe somebody will realize that it's a it's an opportunity rather than a risk. And there's not that many guys who qualify anyway. I mean, in in, in looking over the list of the first round draft picks, the the idea that a guy a pitcher could hit at all was relatively rare. You might only be talking about two or three guys a year. And you know, and and, and if I was a major league team, especially in the National League, and I drafted a pitcher who had any kind of hitting ability, I might say to the minor league development people, I want this guy to swing a bat because a pitcher who swings a bat in the National League is really really valuable. You know, if he if he even if he hits one fifty, it's going to be better than his peers in the National League who are all hitting oh sixty three. You know, it might be worthwhile uh, to to look into is all. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name from from the Cardinals um, that made the you know that made the, the transition. And Keel. Yeah, you know, so obviously it can be done. I just don't know. I, I, I'm I'm not sure why teams don't do it more frequently, honestly. But I'm speculating that it's. Just because they want them to specialize, and they think that the you know the other the other efforts are gonna are gonna distract them from whatever that specialization is. 
but I, but it's, it might be something that teams should look into and exploit more effectively. Yeah, I think in baseball, as in most institutional things, one of the big reasons things are done a certain way is because that's how we always did it. Right. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon, BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst. And Rob, let's look at some specific players that were taken in the first round of the draft. And my first question is about Carlos Rodon, the NC State left-hander. All coming into the draft, it looked like he would be number one, but he fell to number three. Why was that? Well, I think he was probably a little bit less dominant in 2014 than he was in either his um, freshman or sophomore year. Um, he ended up going six and seven with a 2.01 ERA, which you know doesn't sound too bad, too shabby for you know a, a high-profile um, program that he was in. Uh, but his strikeout rate you know dropped a little bit. He you know he struck out 184 in uh, 132 innings in 2013, and this year he struck out 117 and. 98.2 innings, so not not a huge drop, but that's a, that's a significant drop in terms of his dominance. You know, I think more than anything, it was the fact that the Brady Aiken and Tyler Kolick were the, the first two players, high school pitchers that were that were taken in the draft, really just upped their game. They really they really were dominant. Um, they you know had good explosive fastballs um, and and just really athletic, uh, projectable bodies. And so I think that's more than anything that run you know that Rodon did. Negatively, it was more the fact that these other players, Kolek and, and Aiken, really kind of stepped up and emerged from the pack um, and, and maybe had more value than, than he did long-term. But Rodon still looks like a terrific pick for Chicago. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think as number three pick, I think that's a great pick. I mean, you know, he, he's probably going to get to majors relatively quickly. You know, he's lefty. He's got good stuff. He's a polished college pitcher. Uh, he's got three good pitches. So I, I, I love that pick at number three. I think they... The White Sox have to be totally thrilled with that. No major injury problems either after some pretty tough competition in college. It's an interesting point. I was wondering, because it seems to me intuitive that pitchers with college experience are less risky or perhaps it's better to say more likely to achieve potential than high schoolers are because of the age difference and the, and the experience against the competition issue. Have you ever seen any research to question the idea of whether high schoolers or college pitchers tend to pan out more or less frequently? Yeah, there have definitely been some, you know, several studies that have, have documented that college pitchers are slightly more likely to reach the majors and be more productive over the long haul than, than high school um, hurlers are. Um, just like you said, I mean, the, the um, you know, they're more polished. They've had, they're older. You've had a you know, chance to, especially if they're going to, a, you know, like a North Carolina state or something like that where you're gonna, they're going to face high-profile competition day in and day out, year in and year out, which is why the college pitchers, you know, like somebody like like last year, you know, the top two pitchers in the draft were both college, top two players in the draft were both. Um, oh, sorry, the first and third player in the draft were were college pitchers, and so, you know, that's that's why teams prefer to have a college pitcher um, as over a high school guy. But you know, if you think about somebody like Clayton Kershaw, um, who was a high school guy, you know, there those kind of arms don't usually get to college, and so you know, it's a I guess that's the upside of having a high school player is that you get you can put them in your system early on. You don't have to wait for them to develop and trust that somebody else is going to manage the players more effectively. And I, I've also seen studies that suggest that the college pitchers are, are more prone to have Tommy John surgery than high school pitchers are. Um, and so that's one thing I think teams really worry about. And, and Rodon, you know, fortunately, doesn't seem like he had this problem, but his pitch counts, you know, and, and how how you know college pitchers tend to throw fairly heavy pitch counts when they when they do go out there whereas you know if a team drafted a Clayton Kershaw they can manage that uh, right out of high school they can manage that from from day one 
so I think that's the sort of um, you know conundrum that, that teams are looking at is, is trying to assess that as a high school guy maybe not going to pan out as likely probably but but they might be able to control his development a little bit more effectively and I know there's been some some media coverage of the really terrible pitcher abuse by some uh, college managers because of the pressure to win games. Uh, they make, you know, Dusty Baker look like he's coddling these guys. And, and uh, may, maybe that's a, a, a plus. Of course, it would depend on the program and what you knew about the manager in the college program and so forth. Uh, India, um, the Cubs reached for Kyle Schwarber. He's a catcher who was projected to go 15, 20, somewhere in that, in that, in that range. But they grabbed him at number four. Why do you think the reach? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I thought that was. I think there were two picks. The Pirates pick in the first round of Cole Tucker, and then and then the Cubs pick of, of uh, Kyle Schwarber. I thought were two. Uh, I just almost was waiting for like the other shoe to drop. Like, okay, what what explains this move? And I think, you know, from what I've read, the Cubs really liked his bat and thought maybe he had the best bat in the draft. And that may be. I mean, certainly, I would say one of the top five dra- bats in the draft, certainly. But but again, if he if the, I think scouts are are pretty convinced that he's not going to be able to stick behind the plate. The Cubs seem to think he, he might be able to. But if he's not able to stick behind the plate and he ends up moving, being one of those first base guys who you know, maybe hits 280 or 290 and hits you know, 20, 25 home runs, not that that doesn't have value, but just at the fourth pick in the draft, there were, I thought there were a lot more talented players out there, certainly pitchers, which the Cubs need. There were more talented pitchers out there that they, that they could have gotten in that, in that fourth slot there. And I almost was waiting for them to maybe then pop a, like a... Um, a a bonus baby kind of guy later, like in the, in the, with their second pick, but they didn't, they really didn't do you know so they could save some of the money maybe sign Schwarber for a little bit less expensive under his his uh, slot recommended slot and then use that money to sign their second round pick who maybe was a higher pro, profile player but they didn't do that so I'm I don't know it's just kind of a perplexing pick to me uh, as you said I think most most analysts had him kind of in the fifteen to twenty range good player but not certainly not the number four player in, in the country I don't think. The Baseball HQ coverage of the draft was surprised that the Royals reached for left-hander Brandon Finnegan out of TCU at number 17. What was your concern there? Well I think a couple things. One he's, he's 5'11 um, as uh, you know as a smaller pitcher certainly a lot of those a lot of those players end up moving into a relief role. He's got electric stuff. I mean he, he really does have good stuff. He struck 129 batters in 97 innings this year. Uh, you know, and he's lefty, so I understand the the allure of that. But he also has, uh, you know, had shoulder problems this year. He says that's not a big deal. They, you know, did some uh, medical reports, and it, it looks like he's, you know, there isn't a, a long term issue. But still, I think if you put those two things together, the questions about the durability and, the, and his five eleven size, it seems to me like there's a good chance that he ends up being a relief pitcher. Um, certainly, the Royals didn't draft him as a relief pitcher, but. If he ends up being a relief pitcher with the number 17 pick, I, I think that, again, is a, is a bit of a reach there. Um, he would, you know, I think going into the year, he was projected to be a top-20 talent. It's just that you look at his size and the injury history, and it, that just raises some red flags for me. Well, then uh, Virginia closer Nick Howard, also a relief pitcher, obviously going to the Reds just two picks later. That also seems pretty high for a college reliever. What do you suppose the Reds were thinking? Well, I, you know, I think I actually see him as a starter, and I think they're, you know, given he's a he's a much more um, durable kind of player. He's like six four and has good size. Um, he actually has three good pitches. He has a good fastball, mid nineties fastball, a really good twelve to six curveball, and a, and a changeup that has pretty good potential. Um, so he failed as, as Virginia as a, as a Friday night starter. They, that's what they initially thought they, they had there, and then they moved him into the closer role where he was really effective. 
um, and I think the, what the Reds are thinking is, you know, they're, they're going to actually try to make him a, a back, turn him back into a starter. Um, and certainly they have a, a decent track record with uh, Tony Singrani. They did that with, um, you know, and the fact is they they have, I don't think they really drafted him as a closer or as a reliever because they have Chapman, they have a pretty good bullpen, and I don't see any reason for them to not give Howard a really long look as, as a starter. So I, I think it's a little bit of a reach, too, but I think they're thinking they didn't draft a it's interesting. I think the Royals think they drafted a starter, and they may have drafted a reliever, and the Reds drafted a closer, but he actually may be a starter. And if it doesn't pan out, I mean, he's not going to be in the big leagues right away, two, three years from now. Maybe the Reds' bullpen does need some support, and at worst, they get this uh, plus reliever who has shown the ability to close games and the mindset and what have you in the NCAA. You mentioned the Brewers reaching for Hawaii high school left-hander Cody Medeiros at number 12. What was the concern there? Well, I think... Um, I I really kind of like him. I think he's he's young. Um, I think it's an okay pick. I just think it was a little a little high. I mean, he hadn't really faced the kind of competition that you would you know that you've ever done a lot of the, the circuits that some of the players do. Um, he just turned eighteen, so he's on the younger side. But I actually think it's an okay pick. I think you know the fact that they got some good players in addition to him later in, in the supplemental uh, first round and in the second round kind of balances out the risk a little bit there. I just think I just think he's a little bit raw. Um, he has a nice low three quarters arm slot. Um, I just think he was went a little bit earlier than expected, but I actually like his potential. Um, and I think when you pair that up, I think if that was the Brewers' only sort of pick that was going to have an impact, I think it maybe is a little bit of a reach. But the fact that they were able to get some other good players in the supplemental and second round, I think balances off the risk a little bit there. A lot of analysts looking at the draft really like that the Twins took Nick Gordon with the top pick at number five. Uh, what's your take on Nick Gordon as a top five guy? Yeah, I really like him. I think he he's a really interesting player. Obviously, he's the you know son of Tom Gordon and the brother of D. Gordon. Really smart baseball player. Has good speed. Um, you know, the baseball DNA that you kind of look for. He understands the game. He understands how to handle himself around the game. Um, he has a really good approach at the plate uh, and projects to probably have more power than than D. Gordon. He's already shown you know a, a bit more physicality than than D. Gordon ever did. Um, and he really has the tools, unlike D. Gordon, he really has the tools to stick at shortstop. Uh, so, you know, the fact that you're, you're drafting a player who has good makeup, good character, understands the game, probably will be able to stick at shortstop and might develop, you know, above average power. I think that's a good pick there. You mentioned some of those intangible things. Scouts really like those as well. He has good makeup. He has good instincts. He understands the game and how to be a professional because he's been around it for so long. Does that stuff matter when they are making these kind of picks as much as you think it should? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, you don't want to draft the next Elijah Dukes, right? <laughs> so in that sense, the player has to has to conduct themselves in a certain way and sort of have maturity and, and confidence that will allow them to, to maximize their tools and, and to stay on the baseball field and um, you know handle the rigors of, of being a professional baseball player. It's not as easy, I think, as, as people think it is. But, you know, I think that some of the times that, that gets overrated, I mean, who would you rather have, Yasiel Puig or, um, you know, um, Nick Gordon? I'd, I'll take Yasiel Puig and figure out how to, how to, you know, teach him how to be mature and whatever. I mean, I think the talent ultimately trumps the, the maturity, but if you're talking about if all other things are equal, then, yes, character makes a difference. So, you know, I'd rather have Derek Jeter than, than maybe Manny Ramirez because you don't have as many headaches, Right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, and it's the only way that makes sense. You guys also liked uh, Seattle's pick at number six, Alex Jackson. 
Yeah, I love him. I think he, he again, he was a guy that maybe was drafted as a catcher, but probably going to move to the outfield. But, you know, as a high school guy, he has the athleticism still. He hasn't had years and years behind the plate where his knees have been shot or anything like that. So um, so I think he's probably going to be an outfielder, but probably the best pure hitter in the draft. Um, got good bat speed, a plus approach at the plate, and, and the potential to hit for both power and average. Um, so I really like him. I think he's one of the better high school players out there. <coughs> and... Um, you know, like I said, I don't think he's going to stick behind the plate, but I think I think long term, I just really like his potential. I think he's, you know, a minor league, you know, high school guy is going to going to maybe um, be able to move a little bit more quickly. I was a bit confused that the Mets took uh, first baseman outfielder Michael Conforto with the number ten pick, because frankly, I, I know that a lot of people have concerns about his glove that he may only play as a DH in the big leagues. Not much help to the Mets. Yeah, I, I was a little. I, I he was a pick that I wasn't real. He's a good college player. Um, you know, nice offensive potential, good consistency. Um, but, it, you know, I don't know if the, I mean, an, uh, an American League team would have made a lot more sense to me for him to, to end up on an American League team where maybe he could DH. Um, and you see sometimes these guys get, you know, get locked into to National League teams where they they really aren't an asset defensively, which they ha- almost have to be in order to in order to get chances early on. I mean, a lot, you see tons of players, especially at first base, are going to get blocked because, they might, again, you, you, not that they're a dime a dozen, but you, first baseman is probably the position that teams are willing to stick somebody at, you know, more than any other position. And so he's going to really have to hit in order to have potential, in order to get to the majors, especially if the defense isn't there. Because some teams would like to have, like, a James Loney at, at first base, but, you know, when push comes to shove, they're really looking for that, for that power. And so if you, if you don't have a combination of the defense and the power, um, you really have to hit in order to in order to have value, and I think I mean I think Conforto I think he fits that profile. It's just that he doesn't bring much else to the table besides the the power and the ability to hit. Another guy in, in a similar kind of vein, uh, Casey Glaspie went to Tampa at number twenty. They have James Loney uh, signed through two thousand sixteen, so maybe there's a a nice timeline segue possibility there for Glaspie to join the team just as Loney leaves it. But uh, again, here's a guy that. At first base outfield is not really a defensive guy, but he looks like he can hit. Well, and he really can. I mean, he's got he's shown good power at uh, Wichita State. You know, and at 15 home runs, really good plate discipline. Um, you know, had a had an OPS of about 1,200. Uh, you know, so so I think you know again the guy who understands um, because of his brother Connor Gillespie understands um, you know what Major League Baseball is all about and how to get there and how to comport himself and all those other things. Um, you know, it's the difference between taking somebody like that at number 10 versus taking somebody like that at number 20. To me, that makes a lot more sense to take a player like that at number 20. Um, you know, it's not as much money that you're investing in the player, and, and, and the risk is, is significantly less as a result. Um, so I really, I kind of like the Gillespie pick, and I think if Conforto had gone, you know, in the same, in the same range, that would have made more sense to me. I just think that, you know, taking one at 10 and the other at 20, um, when Gillespie's actually probably got a better track record of, of hitting, uh, and might get there a lot sooner. That that seems like a lot better pick to me. We know that the top guys, Aiken, Kolek, Rondon, those kind of guys have fantastic potential. But did you notice any picks in the first round, especially who have high upsides that we might not really be aware of? Yeah, there was there was one guy that I think was really moving up the draft boards pretty rapidly, and that's uh, um, the Arizona Diamondbacks pick, uh, uh, Tuki Toussaint. Not only do I love the name, but um, just a really athletic guy. Um, Probably has as much upside as anyone in the draft class. Obviously, he's got a lot of work to do in terms of 
in terms of his, um, you know, location and, and control and all that kind of stuff, but really projectable. He has good athleticism, mid-90s fastball already, uh, really good curveball, um, you know, and potentially a good changeup. So I, I really like that pick. I think um, there were some teams that were talking about taking him even, like, around 9 or 10. So the fact that he fell a little bit, you know, he shot up the draft boards initially and then dropped back a little bit to the to 16. So I really like that pick there. I think he's definitely a player to keep an eye on. The guy we talked about before, Trey Turner, I think was considered a top, you know, the coming into the year, I think he was ranked number three in most publications. Um, and, you know, real good runner, real good defensive player would be able to stick at at, um, at, at um, shortstop. And excellent play, plate discipline, really knows how to hit. I just think he's going to be a lot better than people think he is. And then a the guy I mentioned earlier, Michael Geddes, um, who went in the second round, I think, uh, to the Padres also. <laughs> I think he's really is going to impress people as a name, especially for, for those that are in deep keeper leagues. If you're looking for somebody to sort of, sort of squirrel away and wait on, I think, I think he might be a good player to, to take a look at. So, Rob, overall, who do you think are the best bets among hitters and pitchers to get to the big leagues the soonest and to have positive fantasy value uh, pretty much right from when they get there? Right. Well, I think, you know, Aaron Nola, he, he, he's a pitcher from LSU, right? He's a pitcher from LSU. Um, you know, and scouts for a couple of years have been saying, yeah, he, his stuff isn't, isn't like wipeout. He's not like a dominant. He's not going to strike out like 12 or 13 guys for nine innings. But every time he pitches, <laughs> he pitches really effectively. So he went at number seven to the Phillies. And I think he's going to move really quickly. Obviously, the Phillies have a need for pitching. Um, they're trying to retool their, you know, their rotation. I think Noel is going to move up pretty quickly. I really like his upside. I don't think he's going to be a number one starter, but I think he's going to be a solid number three starter and might get there really quickly. Obviously, Carlos Rodon for the White Sox. You know, again, another another pitching staff that's sort of uh, retooling. Um, I think they're they're going to need him relatively quickly, and I think he could move up pretty quickly. Um, a couple of relievers, I think Nick Birdie, probably the, the logical one, uh, to the, went to the Twins at number 46. Um, I could see him really moving up quickly. And another pitcher is Jacob Lindgren, with number 55 to the Yankees. What about on the hitting side? Any hitters have a fast track? Um, I definitely think uh, Casey Gillespie that we talked about from uh, Wichita State, that went number 20 to the Rays. I think he's, he has the potential to move up pretty quickly. Um, and another guy, Derek Fisher, the, the Astros outfielder they, they got from University of Virginia. Um, I think he's going to move up. Hitters typically are going to move up a little bit more slowly than, than pitchers are just because, um, for whatever reason, teams are reluctant to move hitters up quite as quickly, and especially pitchers, you know, there's so much need for pitching in the major leagues that those guys are going to get moved up much more quickly. But I think, of the, uh, you know, of all the hitters that, that got drafted sort of in the first and second round, I definitely think that Gillespie and, and Fisher are probably the, the first two to reach the majors. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt talking about the draft. With BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And Rob, normally we ask our Tuesday tout expert for some studs and duds for the balance of the season, but I'm going to add a twist for you. Uh, let's get your studs and duds, but only among rookies who have been called up the last few weeks or you think are going to be called up relatively soon. Uh, first, how about a studly recent call-up or prospect hitter you'd really like to have on your fantasy roster? Well, certainly, um, you know, I think the two obvious choices would be would be Oscar Tavares and um, and Gregory Polanco. I think I think they just have tremendous long term potential. You know, it might take a little bit of time for them to put things together, but I don't think it'll take them a real long time. Especially Polanco. I just I just think he's gonna he's gonna blossom really quickly. He's succeeded pretty much at every level he's been at. He's been he's been really solid for the last couple of years. So I think he'll he'll take off. Tavares might might take a little bit longer to to pan out just because I think his 
major league pitchers aren't going to be able to exploit that a little bit for at least for a couple months until he makes some adjustments. Um, so I think I think those two guys are, are guys I would definitely take a look at. Um, I'm trying to think of a pitcher that that would be a good pitcher to take a take a look at. I can't really think of a pitcher that that sort of jumps out at me right now because I think the hitters are now's the time the hitters are starting to get called up. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't think of a, a pitcher that that really jumps out right now. All right, then, how about uh, let's move to the duds. we got uh, a recent call-up or a prospect who's likely to be called up pretty soon, a hitter that you wouldn't like to have on your fantasy roster, maybe a little promoted a little too soon, something along those lines. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'd be a little bit cautious about Jonathan Singleton. Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously a lot of long-term potential, but there's also a fair amount of swing and miss to his game. Um, he showed pretty, you know, pretty improved plate discipline, uh, and the minors, which is one of the reasons why they, they call him up. But I just think that um, he's going to be expected to do a lot. I think he really might press. I, I really like his bat speed. He's, he's a good player, but I think um, I just think he, it may be a little bit soon for him to, to be called up. And I think he's going to struggle fairly significantly in the, in the short term anyways. And finally, Rob, imagine that uh, somebody comes to you and says, I'm putting together a fantasy team for the 2017 season, and I've got first pick of all the prospects and all the guys who aren't in the big leagues right now, but I can have my choice. Who would you, who would you advise them to take to, to build a, a 2017 team around? I think certainly, um, you know, probably the By- Byron Bucks, and even though he struggled this year, um, it would still be the, that would still be the guy that I would look at just because he's got all the tools. He's got the ability to hit for average. He's got speed. He's got the power. Um, you know, he's a good defender, so when he does get called up, I think he's going he's gonna to be ready to go, and he'll, he'll hit the ground running. So somebody like that would be a player that I would want to sort of initially build around, especially a position player, a key position like that. I mean, um, who, can, who can kind of cover multiple categories like that? That'd be the kind of guy that I would really want to build the team around. All right, Rob, before we wrap up, let our listeners know where they can follow your work. Basically every week on, um, on baseball, baseball HQ Radio, where I'm doing minor league minute, um, and then also we have columns on uh, on the website, um, once a week we have, at least once a week we have minor league column that's out there uh, covering the draft. So we'll probably start talking about second half breakout candidates um, <coughs> in the columns coming up this week. Um, really looking at players that have, that have really started the season strong. And um, so we do a weekly column on there. And we also have um, scouting reports on all the players that have been called up. So Jeremy Deloney and all the other crew, uh, Chris Colby and, and Chris. Uh, we'll be covering all the, the minor league players that are called up and then um, really looking kind of at, at second-half impact prospects for the rest of the season. And you have the minor league watch list. This is a, a really interesting thing that looks at guys who maybe weren't top prospects but seem to have a clear path. Yeah, that, and I think that's a really interesting place to look at, especially if you're playing in a, in a fairly deep league where you know the, the player pool is not that. Because I've played in a couple of leagues like that where the player pool is just not very deep at this point. So really keeping an eye on that watch list being able to sort of be the first player to pull the trigger on somebody that gets called up, and again, it's not it's not your high, you know, it's not your Oscar Tavares or Gregory Polanco's. It's the guys more like a Tommy Lastella who might be on the on the horizon, but maybe people don't know about. In um, trying to figure out, you know, where is that player going to? When is that player going to be called up, and what the what's their role going to be when they do get called up? Because sometimes guys will get called up, and they'll just be, especially pitchers, they'll just come up for one start and get sent back down. So you don't want to waste your fan, your fab dollars on that. Um, so really trying to find a guy like a Tommy Listella, I think that's a perfect example of what you might find on the watch list. 
Yeah, I like that feature a lot because it takes into account what the team needs at any given time and explains whether or not this guy's going to be up up to sit on the bench for two weeks and then get sent back down when whoever uh, is on the DL that he's taking his spot comes back versus a guy who's coming up and may have an, a chance to actually play. And it's a, it's a huge advantage. Rob, thanks very much for doing this. It's really interesting and always a lot of fun. Yeah, you're welcome, Patrick. Thanks for having me back on the show. Rob Gordon is a minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com and along with his several colleagues on the minor leagues team at the site, covers the draft, all the prospects, and the minor leagues for BaseballHQ.com. Our Metric Minute commentary comes up next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. One-month games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with one month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, monthly fantasy baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. Give it a try. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com for these features. Greg Pyram looks for sneaky sources of runs and RBI in the batting buyer's guide. In the minor league call-ups, our Baseball HQ prospects team looks at Andrew Heaney. Break open those fab wallets, boys and girls, and Jake Marisnik, as well as Philadelphia outfield prospect Aaron Alther and more. Bob Berger has a research and analysis piece looking at starting pitcher consistency. Plus, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, performance validation, our buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and more. Take it all in. It's fantasy intelligence for winners at Baseball HQ Radio. Before we move on to the metric minute, who did you guess might hold the record for the longest streak of consecutive starts? If you said Don Sutton of the Dodgers and some other teams, take the silver medal. Sutton is listed at BaseballReference.com as having 756 consecutive starts, but that ignores a stretch in the middle of 68 when the Dodgers used Sutton in relief for a few games. So if we start counting after Sutton rejoined the rotation, he never again appeared in relief and his consecutive start streak reached 674. But that little 1968 interruption gave us room for the streak of another Hall of Fame pitcher, and I'll give you some quick hints. He pitched in more than 4,000 big league innings. He was a pretty decent hitter. He won two Cy Youngs and one World Series MVP. And when he was picked number 47 in the 1984 baseball draft, that was just 22 slots higher than he was also drafted in the National Hockey League draft. Time's up. Our start streak leader is Tom Glavin, who had 682 consecutive starts beginning in August of 1987 when he was first called up by the Braves. 682 games and 682 starts later, he wrapped up his career with a 600 winning percentage, 520 win seasons, a 354 ERA, two Cy Youngs, and a World Series MVP. He had eight seasons above 500 OPS as a hitter, including a 675 in 1996. And he might even have been a hockey player. Glavin was drafted number 69 overall in the 1984 NHL draft by the Los Angeles Kings, ahead of Hall of Famer Brett Hull and future Kings legend Luke Robitaille, 
who went on to become the highest-scoring left-winger in NHL history and the president of the new Stanley Cup champions. Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentary. Rob Gordon's resting his throat, so the Minor League Minute won't be with us this week, but we'll have the Metric Minute and telling us about expected power index for hitters. Here's Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week we take a look at another power metric for hitters, expected power index, or XPX. XPX is a nice complement to last week's Metric Minute, uh, PX, or power index. Uh, XPX takes advantage of hard hit ball data, which tracks a player's fundamental skill of making hard contact to get a feel for what each batter's power index should be. Um, XPX, again, uses that hard hit ball data, line drive rates, and hard hit fly ball rates into the formula, uh, which is adjusted so that the league average XPX is always 100. Your elite hitters are over 150, and your soft hitters are down near 70 or 80 or below. Uh, Just like Power Index, XPX correlates very strongly with home runs, the difference here being that XPX doesn't actually use home runs in its formula uh, like like PX does. So it's a great indicator to tell if a player has a power outbreak looming uh, just based on how often he's hitting those hard fly balls and hard line drives. You can also look at large variances between a player's PX and XPX to see if there are more or less homers on the way. Um, and actually, columnist Greg Pyron wrote a great piece last week comparing those variances for a few hitters to speculate on future uh, power surges and faders on BaseballHQ.com. Here's a couple other examples so far from 2014 on how you can use XPX in your analysis. Uh, Melky Cabrera is one that sticks out. He actually has the lowest XPX of any hitter with 10 or more home runs this season. Uh, So despite the Milkman's powerful start, his 87 XPX, again, below average power, uh, says that the Milkman will need more milk or or something like that to sustain it all season. Don't expect that power to continue throughout the summer. Evan Gaddis is another guy, actually has the highest XPX in baseball with 190. Gaddis already has 15 home runs through June 16th, and his XPX says that's for real. Uh, So he's looking like a 30-plus home run catcher this season the power skills support that another guy lucas duda he only has eight home runs through 200 at bats but his xpx is elite it's at 185 um, highest among anyone with single digit home runs this season so don't be surprised if there's a little power outbreak uh, from duda in the second half especially now that he has full playing time so those are just a couple quick examples of how you can use XPX to see if a player's power is for real or if there's a surge or fade uh, looming on the horizon. XPX can be found on BaseballHQ.com and each player's player link page, as well as on each of our uh, projection files that you can download and use for your own analysis. So for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the site and talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for June the 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 43 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout show, BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon really knows his stuff about the prospects and the draft, and he and the team at BaseballHQ.com do a fantastic job covering the rising stars. So if your league plays with prospects or farm teams, make sure you check out BaseballHQ.com, Rob Gordon and his colleagues. I also want to thank our commentator from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, analyst Ryan Bloomfield, had the metric minute today. 
I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be another Tuesday Tout edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>